It is Thinking Thursday, Theology Thursday, and I am excited to be in the land of the living. Yesterday we had a very, very uh, good conversation. Uh, we did not read from our book. We read from, we were supposed to read from what happened to you. We're talking about trauma and resilience and healing. Um, but instead we got into a conversation about spirituality. And, uh, so we really had our thinking Thursday, uh, I would say kickoff yesterday, our theology Thursday, but we are going to dive back into the book carved in ebony lessons from the black women who shape us by Jasmine L. Holmes. It is black women's history month. And so I encourage you to celebrate and honor the black women in your life. Celebrate and honor the black women who are making history in your life, who are making history in your family, in your bloodline, in your generations. Uh, pay some respect to those women who have refined you and helped you to uh, define your identity. I think it's a really powerful thing to do. Again, the book we're reading from is Carved in Ebony by Jasmine L. Holmes. And we are rem uh, we are completing the life of Lucy Craft Laney. Lucy Craft Laney. And uh, let's see if we can get through her today. And if we can, we will move on to Charlotte Fortin Grimkey. So we've got a few more ladies in this. So we're at the end of Black Women's History Month, but we will definitely um, fin finish up this book for this season. But let's continue to learn about Lucy Craft Laney. <clears throat> when I think of Lucy, the daughter of two once enslaved people who watched her hard work and intellect open doors that had been closed to her ancestors for many years, I understand this perspective. This young woman found herself on the cusp of black citizenship during a time in America's history when her kinsmen were wrestling with what it meant to be a part of American society at all. Cast into a new era of the fight for equality, education had always been a key in Lucy's life. First for her father in his quest to purchase his own freedom, then for her own mother in the unique position as a literate enslaved woman, and then for Lucy herself as a young graduate and professional. Lucy's road to agency or freedom was paved with books. She walked that road and guided many others along it. Notably, her own school was first intended to be a school for girls, but when young men came to her door, she couldn't bear to send them away. In many ways, Lucy was not a picture of 19th century femininity. She was a black woman, unmarried, who wore her hair cropped very close. And yet Lucy prized both femininity and motherhood and saw them as valuable tools in the fight for racial uplift. In 1899, she addressed the Hampton Negro Conference about the need for more teachers and her desire for more black teachers. If the educated color woman has a burden, and we believe she has, what is that burden? How can it be lightened? How many may it be, may be lifted? What 
it is can be readily seen perhaps better than told for it constantly annoys to irritation it bulges out as did the load of bunyan's christian ignorance with its inseparable companions shame and crime and prejudice lucy continues women are by nature fitted for teaching very young children their maternal instinct makes them patient and sympathetic with their charges Negro women of culture as kindergartners and primary teachers have a rare opportunity to lend a hand to the lifting of these burdens, for here they may instill lessons of cleanliness, truthfulness, loving kindness, love for nature, and love for nature's God. Here they may daily start aright hundreds of our children. Here too they may save years of time in the education of the child and may save many lives from shame and crime by applying the law of prevention. In the kindergarten and primary school is the salvation of the race. For children of both sexes from six to 15 years of age, women are more successful as teachers than men. This fact is proven by their employment. As much as we may be tempted to squabble about traditional roles of women in society, and we are allowed to squabble with these women, no matter how illustrious their careers or their great love of God may have been, what resonates with me most is Lucy's clear desire for black educators to take on the role that she deems supremely important in the battle for equality. We know that public school teachers are less ethnically diverse than their students. Having worked in private schools for the vast majority of my teaching career, I know those numbers are even bleaker. Granted, I teach mostly white students and Lucy was specifically seeking to cultivate the minds of black pupils. Nevertheless, regardless of the color of the sea of young faces looking back at me, the writer says, I might have been the only black female authority figure they would encounter during their education. Laney School existed before school integration would cause innumerable private schools to pop up all over the southern states. She existed in a world where black education was a new and burgeoning phenomenon. One she was a beneficiary of, as her education was helmed by women like Sarah G. Stanley and Charlotte Fortin Grimke at the close of the Civil War. She was on the front lines of cultivating what it meant, not only to be Black and educated, but a Black educator who was pouring herself into the next generation. In one generation, Black Americans went from a largely enslaved caste of people to being active citizens of the country that had enslaved them in one generation with education. Now think about the reversal of that in one generation with, with a lack of or under-resourced or miseducated education. Because that's what they're going for. But guess what? Generation Z and Generation Alpha are here and they're not having any of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had to overcome generations of legislated illiteracy, which they're trying to reinstate, not just at the most basic level, but in hopes of participating in the marketplace of ideas and being taken seriously in spite of the color of our skin. We've already talked about striving to understand where Nanny Helen Burroughs' taste for respectability came from, and it is not difficult to extend that same grace to Laney. Not only was black education changing, education as a whole in America was morphing. 
In one of the great changes that occurred after the Civil War, Southerners, both Black and white, redefined the meaning of education in the South. Southern states had not created public educational systems during the antebellum period. Hence, possession of an education was reserved for the elite who could afford tutors in private schools. I keep trying to tell people this as one who has been a professional educator for 23 years. Education was initially reserved for the elite who could afford tutors in private schools. So when you see programs that are defunding public schools, that are shutting down public schools, and that are pushing funding back into private and charter schools, and also tutoring companies, you are seeing the deconstruction of public education. Period. So you need to understand that and prepare for that if you are a parent. Because they're not trying to reverse course on that. So you need to prepare for that. In the antebellum and postbellum, South education signified power. After the war, however, the freed people made education a priority and essentially forced the issue of public education for children of all races and classes. It was because of the work of the formerly enslaved that you got public education for all classes and ethnicities of people. This is not conjecture. This is what happened. And so when you see our systems pulling back from black people, they are also pulling back from poor people and people who can't afford private schools and private tutors for their children. Talking less and doing more. As much as Lucy Craft Laney meant to so many, records of her speeches are scarce. I love that about her though. She seemed to be a woman more focused on doing than on talking, speaking only when necessary to garner funds for her school, to try to recruit more black teachers, and of course, in the classroom. She seemed to be a quiet, no-nonsense woman, which makes her impact on her pupils that much more extraordinary. It was clear from other speeches Lucy gave that she prized the institution of the black family, particularly that of motherhood. In a speech given at the Atlanta University Conference on Negro Problems, arranged by W.E.B. Du Bois in 1898, she stated, Motherhood, honored by our blessed master, is the crown of womanhood. This gives her not only interest in the home and society, but also authority. She should be invested in the welfare of her own neighbor's children. To women has been committed the responsibility of making the laws of society making environments for children. It is also clear that her idea of motherhood was not limited to keeping of the home, skills she proudly taught in her school, but extended to the shaping of a woman's mind and concern not only for her own children, but for her neighbor's children. Mothers were not an island unto themselves, meant only to influence the goings-on of their own homes, but rather a connection between their own children and concerns to the children and concerns of others within their societies and environments. And Lucy presided over the school with the dedication of a mother.
If the building has been cold, she herself has found what ailed the furnace. If some girl who was supposed to be working in the kitchen needed to get out of doors in the sunshine, Miss Laney would take her place, bake the bread, peel the potatoes, or wash pots and pans. When some exceptionally good movie comes to town, she sees to it that all the children enjoy it. The salutatorian of the 1930 graduating class tells how Miss Laney took her younger sister to her home and put her in her own bed in order that she might keep her warm. She once left an interview early to help one of her young students finish building a dollhouse. Lucy was known by everyone who had the pleasure of interacting with her as a tender-hearted woman who was not afraid to give of herself, not just to the cause of education, but to the service of the children whom she dearly loved. As a mother myself, I can only hope my children will say the same of my contribution to our household. I can only hope that my students not got to see a glimpse of Lucy Craft Laney's service in me during my years as a teacher. I want to go back to a couple of things that she um, that she said here about public school teachers are less ethnically diverse than their students. And I would say, unless you are at a um, Black-owned school or Black-led school, that's going to tend to be the case as well in private school. It gets even less. It gets even less. It gets even less. So my first teaching position coming out of college, um, I think at the time I was maybe, there was maybe two black educators at the school that I was at. And I think for the most part, it kind of remained that way. As long as I was there, it was maybe two or three of us. Um, I know for a lot of my students, it was their first time. Um, because the school was definitely predominantly white, I would say it was like mm, 98% white. And it was their first time having a black woman as an educator and a black woman in authority over them. And let me tell you, some of those kids gave lots of pushback because they didn't feel like a black woman should be telling them anything. Yeah. So not only <laughs> as a black educator are you you know, working through the responsibilities of teaching children, but you're also working through the white supremacy that has been embedded even in children as young as five and six years old, thinking that they don't have to listen to you because you're black. Yeah. Nobody really talks about that. Um, and then let me see. The other school I worked at was Black-owned, Black-led, and it was an all-black staff, and it was beautiful. <laughs> the other school I moved on uh, after that school to an alternative school that was initially, um, a, uh, I would say maybe 40 to 50% of the staff was black. But I would say 90% of the students were black. And it was an alternative setting. So it was a really um, powerful dynamic. The director was white, um, but it was a powerful dynamic because she did try to really understand what the students needed. And she tried to support us as we gave the students what they needed. And 
I would definitely say she was a co-conspirator. She wasn't just an ally. She was a co-conspirator in um, serving the needs of black and brown children um, and giving us the freedom and the resources in order to help children to excel. Now, that alternative school that I worked at, at, I think our graduation rate from there was like 92, 93% of the students that matriculated in actually finished the program and graduated. And then, um, so from there, I moved, I shifted to another state and went through public education, uh, teaching in Virginia and teaching in Maryland. And I will definitely say that <laughs> Virginia, mm, God helped the children in Virginia because there wasn't a whole lot I felt that I could do there because of the insidiousness of white supremacy in the school system in the state of Virginia. And it's going to get worse, um, especially with the governor that they currently have. Um, Maryland was definitely and has definitely been uh, better situated. But now that I run my own education company, I get to uh, choose the interactions that I want to have. And yeah, I'm really excited about it because I get to interact with children of all races, ethnicities, age levels, um, subject matter. And I get to interact with children from all over the world. And it's a fabulous, fabulous thing. So I can understand why education is moving back toward privatization. I can. Um, when you start gutting public education and public funding, that is ultimately what you're going to get. And I would say to black educators, especially those who are still in the public school system, you need to be thinking about your future as an educator and how you want that to look. You want to be, you want to be thinking about um, preparing to lead some freedom schools like Lucy Laney did. You need to be preparing for that. You need to be preparing for parents coming to you and saying, hey, how can I supplement my child's education? Okay. This summer I'm getting ready to, I'll be running a couple of programs. One I'm going to be running because I've had really good success with it. I'm going to be running a program for ACT and SAT students who need about, you know, a week of just preparing and understanding what's on the test and how the test works and how it operates. I'm going to be doing that so that our students are not left behind. I'm going to try to get as many kids, as many students involved. The SAT is changing. It's going to be really controlled and operated by AI um, in the United States beginning in spring 2024 for students. And I can tell you now there are a lot of parents and students that are not prepared. It's going to hit them like a brick because they're not paying attention and they're not keeping up with what is happening in education. Plain and simple. I'm also going to this summer, I'll be running a one week workshop for artivists, students who are interested in um, social activism, they're interested in social justice, they're gifted, they're talented, 
but they want to know how can I use my gifts, my talents, my skills in order to affect change? How can I use music and poetry and writing and visual arts and photography? How can I use those things in order to affect change? So I, am be, I will be holding this summer a one-week workshop around that. Now, there will be a cost to these workshops. I'm not going to be doing everything for free, but I will try to make it affordable so that as many students that want to participate can be involved. All right. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the future is here and you have to shift your thinking. So not only do parents have to shift their thinking, but educators as well have to shift their thinking. Black Educators in particular have to shift their thinking. All right. The legacy of Lucy Laney. And we'll be finishing up with Lucy Laney today. When she died, the Augusta Chronicle described her home going as more like a coronation than a funeral. An estimated 5,000 people attended the funeral, each one a testament to Lucy Craft Laney's impact on the lives of her students and beyond. Her quest to build up a culture of black excellence in education was well accomplished. From the age of 14, Lucy Craft Laney knew that she wanted to be a teacher. And she spent her entire life in dogged pursuit of this goal. Her focus was on the uplift of the black youth of Augusta, Georgia. And she threw herself so completely into that focus that she lived on the campus where she taught. She operated within her small corner of the world with a faithfulness that we would do well to emulate, even if our different corners seem further reaching than hers. Lucy is a testament to what it looks like to faithfully stick to a task. Although she was involved in activism as well as education, the bulk of her time was spent in the classroom and in facilitating the classroom experiences of other teachers. She does not have a host of speeches that I can pull from to illustrate her faith in Christ, but perhaps more than any other woman in this book, she has the testimony of the people who knew her and saw her service up close. I do not know if there will be 5,000 people at my funeral or if I will have to live to a ripe old age as Miss Lucy Laney did. I do not know what the testimony of my life will be when all is said and done. There are so many different parts at play. And depending on the season, different descriptives may rise to the top. But I hope that whatever my priorities are as each day goes by, that I am known for the full-hearted service that Lucy was known for, for advocacy that was not for an audience, but was lived out day by day in a classroom full of perhaps even thankless children, for teaching people who would go further and do more than she could ever dream, thereby multiplying her influence by the thousands. What an incredible testimony of God's faithfulness this woman was. From enslaved parentage to a thorough education lived out in quiet, humble intellect in service to others. What a legacy she left, not only for her students, but for every person who picks up her story. What a legacy she has left me. What a legacy she has left you. And now we are going to start reading Daughter of a Legacy, Charlotte Fortune Grimke. If you're just coming in, we are reading from Carved in Ebony. I highly recommend this book um, if you are looking for stories about Black women of faith, which up until this point has been kind of hard to find. 
So I'm really glad that um, this particular writer has chosen um, 10 black women of faith to pull from history and bring to the forefront. The book is by Jasmine L. Holmes and it's called Carved in Ebony. So let's do a little introduction on the life of Charlotte Fortin Grimke. This is what she had to say in her own words. I shall dwell again among mine own people. I shall gather my scholars about me and see smiles of greeting break over their dusky faces. My heart sings a song of thanksgiving at the thought that even I am permitted to do something for a long abused race. It is hard to be a building block in a family legacy. I know it from experience, the writer says. Forging my own path while respecting and appreciating the path my parents set before me is a constant balancing act. Brimming with gratitude for all that my parents were and are for me, did and do for me while seeking growth and healing from their mistakes and oversights is a tricky in a world, is tricky in a world that likes to court scandal. I talk about my parents in therapy a bit more than the average person because of that gigantic looming presence they are in my life. Not only am I the daughter of a, in some circles, a well-known pastor, I am a homeschool graduate who did not leave the nest until I married my husband at the age of 24. For better or for worse, my world was really small until I left my home. My larger-than-life dad, my poster child of a homeschool mom, and my eight younger siblings were my life, job and grad school notwithstanding. Entering marriage plunged me into a whole new world of figuring out who I was as I tied my life to another person. No longer were my decisions merely an appendage that felt pressured to move along with the current of my countercultural family. Even though many people still saw them that way, the reality was I was a Holmes now, and it was only as a Holmes invested in a one flesh union with my husband that I realized that I am an individual. My journey towards separating my idea of self from my family of origin is difficult and ongoing. But when I think about the life of Charlotte Fortin Grimke, daughter, granddaughter, and niece of abolitionists, activists, entrepreneurs, teachers, and world changers, my journey suddenly seems simpler. Rather than waiting for marriage to move boldly into her life's ambition, Charlotte did not marry until the age of 41. By that time, she had spent years as a teacher, a folklorist, and a prolific diarist. Charlotte did not accomplish her life's mission by bucking against her family of origins calling, nor did she accomplish it by following in lockstep with the path that had been set before her. Instead, she used the legacy she had inherited to galvanize her to action on behalf of the people that her family spent their lives serving. The beginning of a legacy. Charlotte's legacy begins with her great-great-grandfather, who was brought over from West Africa as an enslaved person in the 1680s. As soon as he was able, he purchased his freedom and devoted his life to learning a trade. His son, Thomas, would die shortly after the birth of James Fortune, Charlotte's grandfather. James's mother made sure he received an education, and he attended school funded by the famed Quaker abolitionist Anthony Benazay. At the age of 14, James would join the Revolutionary War effort, and upon the war's end, after a short stint traveling in England, 
he would become an apprentice to sailmaker Robert Bridges. Through sailmaking, Fortin would eventually become a businessman. James Fortin would leverage his family business by inventing an instrument that made his sailmaking even more proficient, and he became one of the wealthiest black men in Pennsylvania as a result. In addition to his business sense, James was an active abolitionist, providing early funding for William Lloyd Garrison's magazine, The Liberator, co-founding the, the Free African Society and applying his voice to the same Jeremiah tradition as his contemporary David Walker. He often drew upon the patriotism of his fellow, fellow servicemen to defend his personhood as a black man. We hold this truth to be self-evident that God created all men equal and is one of the most prominent features in the Declaration of Independence and in that glorious fabric of collected wisdom, our noble constitution, he would say. Like Elizabeth Freeman before him, Fortin asserted that the founding documents of the country where he resided, the country that he had fought for, applied to its black residents. He stated these thoughts in letters from a man of color which he self-published in 1813 on the precipice of proposed legislation that, if passed, would prevent Black people from migrating to Pennsylvania. The legislator had passed an act for the gradual abolition of slavery in 1780, and Pennsylvanians were nervous at the prospect of having more free Black people among them. Hello, Pennsylvania, looking at you. James was poised to make a case for his humanity in light of that fear. In addition to pouring himself into the important work of abolition for the enslaved population, he worked incredibly hard to serve the free population. He started a school with Grace Douglas, mother of the last woman in his collection, Sarah Maps Douglas, that served free black students, some of whom were James's own children. James and his wife, also named Charlotte, would have six children. Sarah Louise would become a poet, abolitionist, and frequent author for The Liberator. Harriet would help found the Philadelphia Female Anti-Slavery Society and do important work as a suffragette. Margareta, the aunt closest to Charlotte, would become an abolitionist, an educator, and a poet. And Robert Bridges, Charlotte's father, would become a businessman, mathematician, orator, and inventor. One of his inventions, a novel telescope, would be displayed at Philadelphia's Franklin Institute. Charlotte's mother died when she was a young girl, and Robert delegated her care to his mother and his sister, Margareta. Robert himself moved to Canada, frustrated with the racism he frequently encountered in the States. He would not return until the dawn of the Civil War, enlisting in the 43rd U.S. Colored Troops Infantry Regiment at the age of 50. Charlotte held a deep esteem for her father, writing this in her journal. I thank father very much for his kindness, and I am determined that so far as I'm concerned, he shall never have cause to regret it. I will spare no effort to become what he desires that I should be, to prepare myself well for the responsible duties of a teacher, and to live for the good that I can do my oppressed and suffering fellow creatures. She saw him as an example of the kind of activism she hoped to accomplish later in life, and she did her father proud. Ooh, woo, woo, wee. I'm gonna stop right there. 
Oh, I can't wait until we get back to the black families where everybody is an abolitionist. Everybody, everybody is an abolitionist. Everybody is an activist. Everybody is working toward the freedom and liberation of black people. And it's not just one or two people per family, per generation. That people in your family look at you like you're crazy. When coming out of enslavement, everybody in the family knew they had a responsibility toward black freedom and liberation. Everybody knew this. Everybody was involved in some way in abolitionist work and liberating black people. So no matter what profession they chose to go into, they understood it was a community expectation and community responsibility to help liberate black people. That's what happens when you stop rehearsing your history. When you stop rehearsing your history, the generations that come get disconnected from their responsibility and from their rich heritage, by the way, of educating and liberating their own people. Yes, you can be a professional. Yes, you can go make money. And underlying all of that <laughs> is your responsibility to educate and liberate the people in your community that you're connected to. Once again, I am super glad and welcoming of Generation Z and Generation Alpha because I believe they get it. I believe that those two generations, as they look to each other, they're looking to each other to take care of each other. I have seen that in those two generations more than I've seen in my own generation. So I welcome what I see in the coming generations for black people. I welcome that. I'm going to nurture that. Yes, I am. <laughs> Every single chance that I get Every single chance that I have to interact with Generation Z and Generation A, I am going to nurture that. Their love for each other and their responsibility to, the, to each other and their collective. I sure am. All right. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host today, Shantae Charles. I want to open it up. So if you'd like to join me for conversation, I do not bite. All you have to do is click on that little camera button with the plus sign and I will add you in. If you would like to share your thoughts, your insights, I invite you to be a co-host by responding. So the floor is open. If you are listening by anchor, I want to thank you for your time and your attention. Please join us live on Daring Dialogues IG Monday. Wednesday, Thursdays, and Fridays at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We invite you in. Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Facebook page, Black Table Talk. We are currently running a poll there 
about relationships and physical attractiveness. So if you'd like to participate in that poll, go check it out on Black Table Talk. Be well and be light. Take care.